thanks so much for joining us today on Leesburg Community Church's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, including directions and service times, please visit leesburgcc.org. On our website, you can also find notes and daily devotionals based on this teaching. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you liked today's message. Good morning to you. My name is Ed Nall. If you're new around here, I'm one of the pastors here. They call me the executive pastor. Uh, the, the primary scripture we're going to look at this morning is uh, Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 31, along with the parallel passages in Matthew 16. Before we do that, I want to say what a joy it is to preach in this church. What an honor it is uh, to preach in this church that has such a rich heritage of the preaching of the Word of God. And I want to say how thankful I am for each one of you that is here. I'm acutely aware of how busy people are in Loudoun County, how busy our lives are. And yet you, uh, you have taken the time to come here this morning to hear the Word of God as we continue in our study of the Gospel of Mark. So I'm thankful for each one of you. We're looking at the hinge point in Mark's Gospel. The first half of his Gospel answers the question, who is Jesus? And there's a pivot point, which we'll look at today. And then the second half of the book is, what did Jesus come to do? From this point forward, the shadow of the cross will fall on Jesus' path. The agony of the cross and the great cost of bringing many sons and daughters to God will mark Jesus' journey. From now on, everything moves toward Jerusalem, toward the rejection and the betrayal of Jesus, toward the whipping post and the bloody cross. We're right in the middle of Mark's gospel where Peter recognizes that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, but he does so with limited understanding. So Peter answers the question Jesus asks of all of us this morning, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus? I put the question, who is Jesus, into my search bar this week, and I got 1,200,000,000 sites, which include hundreds of billions of pages. Jesus has been on the cover of countless magazines. He's been on the cover of Time magazine 21 different times, and those covers generate more response than any other covers in the history of Time magazine. Jesus is good for their business. And they need it because they're a magazine in the 21st century. In the last two decades, there have been thousands of books published that seek to uncover the real Jesus. Many of them claim to use dispassionate reasoning or scientific method or previously undiscovered evidence to tell us who Jesus really is. And the portraits that they paint are of Jesus the fanatical Jew, Jesus the sage, Jesus the rabbi, Jesus the compassionate social justice warrior. People in our day seek to construct a Jesus of their own design with which they can be comfortable. There are hundreds of competing ideas as to who he was that have been developed and promoted for various motives. But there's only one Jesus, and he defines himself. And we will rely on the testimony of Scripture written by those who walked with him in the first century or people who, who knew those who did. And their testimony comes to us this morning in Mark's gospel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And that's the testimony upon which we will rely. 
Now, a brief aside. Um, I'm now on the board of directors here at this church, and as we begin our search for the new pastor that will take uh, the senior pastor role in this church, we've been working on the core values that we will use to determine who that man will be. And here's the first one that we've come up with. We live and grow in the light of God's inerrant word. We live and grow in the light of God's inerrant word. And then in support of that, we seek to make all decisions about life and ministry according to the scriptures. We seek to grow personally and collectively as we value God's word above all other sources. That's the first core value that we're working with as we go about the important task of finding the next senior pastor for this church. I want to look briefly at verses 22 through 26 of Mark chapter 8 because they are directly related to Peter's great confession. There's an analogous relationship between partial healing and partial understanding. Or to put it another way, the relationship between the healing of a blind man that came in stages and the revelation from God as to who Jesus is that also came to the disciples in stages. There are no coincidences in Scripture. God has inspired the writers to place things in an order that is purposeful. In Mark 8, 22 through 26, we learn of a man who is blind and is healed in two stages. So listen closely to this story. This is different than the way Jesus usually healed people. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Let's pray for the reading of God's word this morning. Heavenly Father, we are completely dependent on you. You are dependent on no one and no thing. But we are dependent on you. And so we need your help, Lord, to hear the word and to understand it. We need your help. To put it into practice, we most certainly need your help. So Lord, help me as I speak and help all of us as we hear from you to listen and to apply your word to our lives. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing I want you to notice in verse 22 is the care that Jesus shows to this man. He takes him by the hand and he leads him. And I'm sure that he's leading him around whatever obstacles are in the way. This is a very personal thing to do. And then he leads him out of the village, which has become a place of unbelief. That's why he tells him not to go back. So these people had brought this blind man to Jesus and asked him to touch him. They were sure that a touch would heal him. And they had good reason to believe that. If we look back at Mark chapter 5, we see the woman with the issue of blood. All she had to do was touch the hem of his garment with faith, and she was healed. So that's what they thought would take place. Many people have been healed that way. But he did something different this time. And I believe 
It's a very purposeful, purposeful thing to do. It has meaning for the disciples, and it has meaning for us. Jesus spits on the man's eyes. He lays his hands on him, and then he asks him if he sees anything. And he says, I, I see people, but they look like trees walking. So his sight is partially restored. He's seeing things, but it's cloudy. I imagine at this point, the man's friends were disappointed. They thought that a touch would heal him. That didn't happen. But Jesus' miracles are not just events of healing. Sometimes they're parables of a greater spiritual reality that is taking place. Sometimes God heals us both spiritually and physically in stages. I think that's most often the case. And God's ways are different than ours, are they not? Thanks be to God. We cannot restrict God to doing things in the way that we expect him to do them. And here's why. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. You know this passage. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's ways, his methods, his timing may be hidden from us. He has perfect, long-term, eternal perspective, and we do not. He knows exactly what he's doing and why, and we do not. He never fails, and we often fail. If you're going to trust anyone, it can't be yourself. It must be God. Then in verse 25, Jesus touches his eyes again, and he sees clearly right away. It seems to me that this account has been placed right before Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ for this reason. The healing of the blind man comes in two stages. This cannot be because Jesus lacked the power to heal this man instantly. He had healed others with just a touch, and others he had healed remotely. Go back to your village, your daughter as well. He didn't even have to be there. He just spoke it, and it happened. Something else is in play here. So with the two-stage healing of this man in mind, now let's read verses 27 through 31, the pivot point in Mark's gospel. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. So here's where we're going this morning. My mentor and good friend, Pastor Butch Hardman, I think he's 82 years old now. He says that if you study and meditate on a passage in the Word of God, it will outline itself. It's there in the text. So here's our outline. It presents itself to us in four questions. Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? What did Jesus come to do? And what will it cost? That's the outline. Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? What did Jesus come to do, and what will it cost? 
Peter knows that Jesus is Christ, the Messiah, which means the anointed one, the anointed one of God. Peter has supplied the proper title, but he doesn't have the proper understanding. The revelation of who Jesus is and what he has come to do and what it will cost him is coming to the disciples in stages. They're slowly understanding, just as the blind man's sight was restored in stages. Peter's view of Jesus is blurry. It's not fully developed yet. You remember those cameras that this Polaroid camera, I think it was, you put this cartridge into it, then you took the picture and it spit out this thing with a motor and it was all blurry and then gradually you got a picture out of it. They weren't great cameras. But you get the idea. The picture is coming into view. Jesus is going to put on the servant's towel instead of a warrior's sword. He's going to, he's going to practice sacrifice over vengeance. He's not going to inflict suffering. He's going to absorb suffering. The time when Jesus reveals not only who he is, but how he's going to accomplish what the Father has given him to do is close, but it's not yet. It's not yet. Jesus has been preaching and teaching and healing for about two years now, and he has demonstrated his superior knowledge of the Old Testament, his understanding of the Scriptures. But not only does his knowledge and wisdom surpass everyone else's, he's also demonstrated his power. He has healed the sick. He's given sight to the blind. He's even raised people from the dead. He has the power over life and death. So now he and his disciples are on their way to Caesarea Philippi. It's about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus asks the first of our four questions, who do people say that I am? The disciples would be in a really good position to answer that question because they've been traveling with Jesus, they've been among the people, and they have heard what the people are saying and the questions that they're asking. So they, they would know. Some people say that you're John the Baptist come back from the dead. Others say you're Elijah. And others think one of the prophets of old, not sure which one. Well, there is a prophecy in Malachi chapter 4, about Elijah. I think it's in verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So they're thinking, Jesus may be Elijah. But Luke has already identified John the Baptist in Luke 1, 17, as the one who came in the spirit and power of Elijah. So that's already taken place. Jesus is not Elijah. Jesus is not John the Baptist. The man on the street thinks that Jesus is great, that he might be a prophet, but they have no idea that he's the Messiah. They do not see him as he really is. No one understands this fully yet, not even the disciples who've been with him all of this time. So the people are partially correct. He's a prophet because he speaks for God and does the works of God. So he is a prophet. But he isn't a prophet of old who's come back from the dead. He is far greater, far, far greater than any prophet of old. The prophets of old spoke of the one who was to come, but Jesus is the one to come. The prophets were messengers from God, but Jesus is their message, the incarnate word of God. Besides, Israel regularly killed the prophets of old. So yes, he's a prophet, 
But he's the prophet to end all prophets. And he is so much more than that. Jesus is the eternally existent Son of God. The one who created the world. Everything was created through him. Without him, nothing that was made was made. And he is, according to Hebrews 1, the one who sustains the world by the word of his power. And he has now come as the Savior of the world. He is far greater than John the Baptist, who never performed a miracle, or Elijah, or all the prophets of old combined. John Calvin was the first to formulate the threefold role of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. He said that he holds all three offices simultaneously. He is a prophet because he speaks for God and does the works of God. He is a priest because he intercedes on our behalf. And he is a king because he rules over all for all time. Now, Jesus asks our second question. But who do you say that I am? And he's asking that question of all of us today. In the way that you live your life, who do you say that he is? And, Jesus, and then Peter answers for the group as he usually did. He says, you're the Christ. And in Matthew's parallel account, he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So Peter has the correct answer, and Jesus commends him for it, but it's still only partial. Disciples believe that Jesus is the king that Israel has been waiting for, who's going to sit on David's royal throne forever, but they have really earthbound expectations as to what that means. And Jesus is going to correct those ideas soon, as we'll see. But here's a question. How does one come to the right answer to Jesus' question? How does one come to understand this? How did Peter or the disciples, or for that matter, you, come to know who Jesus is. And Jesus tells us in Matthew 16, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father, who is in heaven. What Jesus is doing here is pointedly contrasting Peter's earthly father with his heavenly father. That's why he uses Peter's given name, Simon. Simon Bar-Jonah, which simply means Peter is the son of a man named Jonah. That's all it means. Jesus is telling Peter that he didn't come to know who Jesus is through earthly means. The knowledge that Jesus is the Christ is not a flesh and blood thing. It's a blessing from God. That's why Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Now, God does use, from a human perspective, a mixture of means to communicate this truth. Peter had seen Jesus heal the sick. He, of course, had walked on the earth that God had created. He had seen him cast out demons, and he had heard his awesome teaching. And I'm sure that the disciples had many discussions among themselves as to who Jesus was. But ultimately, there is one good and perfect gift giver, and that is God. In the doxology, we just sang it, praise God from whom all blessings flow. All blessings, including the blessing of spiritual knowledge and the blessing of faith in him. It is not our great intelligence, not our moral superiority or our impeccable character that opens the door to the kingdom of heaven so that we can see that Jesus is the Christ. It is a gracious and merciful work of God. 
John, the beloved apostle, put it this way in John 1, verses 11 through 13. He came to his own, that's the Jews, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Brief review. We've gotten answers to our first two questions. Who do people say that I am? All kinds of wild speculation that began when Jesus was on the earth and has continued until this day. Most likely will continue until he returns. And then the second question, who do you say I am? You are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And that leads us to our third question this morning. What did Jesus come to do? What did he come to do? Well, he came to suffer and die. But that does not fit with the disciples' understanding of what the Messiah would do. He came to suffer the penalty that I should have paid for my sin. There were three times in the Gospel of Mark, beginning in the last verse of our passage, verse 31, where Jesus tells his disciples what he's going to do. He's going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to be killed, and he's going to rise from the dead. So we're going to read all three of those. They're, they're very brief. But these words are going to stun the disciples. They've just confessed that Jesus is the Christ. He immediately tells them, I'm going to die. I'm your leader. I'm going to Jerusalem to die. Try to put yourself in their place. They have seen the power of Jesus. They think he's going to rule over all, and he's going to put down all of their enemies but when he finally speaks about his messianic status, he doesn't claim the common understanding. He blows it away. He redefines it until it's beyond recognition. So I want us to feel the weight of these words, as the disciples did, who have put so much faith and hope in Jesus the Messiah. Mark 8, 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. And be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. Then one chapter later, Mark 9, 31. He was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Jesus is still teaching them. They're still not getting it. One chapter later, Jesus fleshes things out a little more fully. See? We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So how do the disciples know who Jesus is? They know he's the Messiah. But Jesus knows that further teaching is going to be required. Everyone, including the disciples, had false expectations of what Messiah would do. Their vision was still clouded. They saw men walking, but they looked like trees. Their vision of what Messiah had come to do and how he would accomplishment is still only vague. And Peter, as we'll see next week, even rebukes Jesus for saying that he's going to die. So here's what Jesus came to do. Five things from these three texts. He came to die. 
He is doing so intentionally. He will be condemned by the Jewish religious leaders. He will be murdered. This is not a suicide mission. And he will rise from the dead after three days. This is not what they wanted to hear. The disciples don't understand their own spiritual need yet. And they do not understand that Jesus will die and be resurrected for the sins of all who will believe in him. Jesus has a lot more to teach them and a lot more work to do. So Jesus has told them shockingly what he will do, but he hasn't yet said why. He hasn't said why he's going to do these things. He hasn't yet said why he would intentionally on his, go to Jerusalem and then be murdered and then rise from the dead three days later. Why? Just a few verses later, Mark 10, 45, he does. The Son of Man, that's Jesus' favorite title for himself, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. And ransom here could also be rendered substitute. He came to offer his life as a substitute for many. This is the great central fact of history. Jesus, the Son of the living God, came to give his life as a ransom for many. And who are the many? All of those who would put their trust in him. All of those who would believe in him. Because of our sin, we needed someone who could make the ransom payment on our behalf. Jesus is the one. We needed Christ's righteousness that would be credited to our account by faith because our righteousness would never be enough to impress a holy and righteous God. This is the main thing in the Scriptures. Everything is aimed at this. I had a friend, Scott Crepain, he wrote a song a few years ago. It's called The Main Thing. And the chorus is, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Duh. But it's true. And that's what we seek to do in our church, to keep the main thing the main thing. That's why there's a cross right up there behind me. Remember Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. This is the most important thing to the Apostle Paul. Christ died for our sins, was buried and raised on the third day. And that it was done in accordance with the scriptures. God had predicted these events, but his word was not rightly understood. The world and all of us in it lie in a prison of our own making. It's a prison of sin. It's a prison of the failure to glorify God and be thankful to him. So, can we ransom ourselves from this prison? Can we pay the price, the price of redemption? Listen to Psalm 49, 7 and 8. Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. In other words, no mere man can ransom another man's soul. You cannot ransom your own soul. You can't pay the price 
It's far too high. But there is good news in the next verse. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. We cannot ransom ourselves. Only Jesus could do that. Only Jesus could provide the acceptable substitutionary sacrifice. That's what the Scripture is clearly saying. Let's say that uh, I was sinless, which is a laughable idea. But let's say my my wife is laughing. Uh, (laughs) Just say that I was. I'm sinless. And let's say that Heidi has some sin. And I want to sacrifice my life to pay for her sin. That might work, but only for her. Only for her. There's only one who could sacrifice his life, and it would be sufficient for everyone who put their faith in him. And that one is Jesus the Christ. So we know who people said Jesus was, and they were wrong. We know who the disciples said Jesus was, the Messiah, but they get an incomplete. We know what he came to do, to suffer and die, to pay the penalty for our sins, to be raised on the third day. And we know why he came pay the ransom price for our sin. And now I want to look at what it costs. Because forgiveness always costs something. Forgiveness always costs something. I'll try to show you what I mean. Some of you know that I was in a a band called Glad for about 35 years. We recorded 23 albums over the years, and by God's grace, we had some success. In the early years, we had a manager who had a moral failure and then compounded that failure by stealing a significant amount of money from us. I was a very young man at the time. I wasn't quite sure what to do. I went to my pastor at that time, a man named John Fletcher, and I asked him what we should do. And he listened carefully to the details of my story. Then he asked me a question. Do you believe that God can replace what you have lost? Well, the answer is obvious. Yes. Yes, he can then forgive this man. Even if he never repents, even if he never pays you back, forgive him the debt. When he stole from us, a debt was created. He owed us the money. It was our money. Someone had to pay for what had been lost. Either he would pay the money back or we would absorb the loss. As it turned out, uh, we forgave him. Uh, We never heard from him again. And we absorb the cost of the forgiveness. And I've never regretted it, not even for a minute. But remember, forgiveness always costs something. So what did it cost for Jesus to forgive the sins of the world? The sins of all those who had put their trust in him? It cost him his life. The only perfect man that ever lived, who should have been worshipped, adored, praised, had to die to pay for my sin. Someone asked, how sinful are you? I would say, I'm so sinful that the Son of God had to die to pay for my sins. And you'll notice I said he had to die. Verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. He must suffer. There is no other way. There are two things in the world, at least, that must happen. Because God is holy and righteous and good, he must punish sin. God can't like sin even a little bit. Therefore, if anyone is to be forgiven of their sins, Christ must die. 
That's the only payment for our debt that is sufficient to satisfy the righteous wrath of God against our sin. God is a righteous judge. Let me give an example of righteous judgment from recent local history. A couple of years ago, there was a, uh, a man, I, I believe he called himself a Christian. Uh, there was a murder trial here in Loudoun County. He was estranged from his wife. He sneaked back into the family home. He murdered his wife, and he staged the scene to make it look like a suicide. And then he sneaked back out, and he was convicted and sentenced to a long prison term. Now, suppose the judge, after hearing all of this evidence that clearly established this man's guilt, decided, I'm just going to let him go free. Suppose the judge said something like, this man is my friend. And even though he did this thing, we're just going to let him go. We're not going to punish him at all. There would be outrage in the courtroom. There would be outrage in the community, and there should be, because the judge has not acted properly. But God is a righteous judge, and so sin must be punished. And he punished the sins of those who would believe in Jesus on the back of his precious son. The righteous requirements of God's law demand that a ransom price be paid for sin, and not one of us could pay that price, not one. We needed a substitute who was far greater than John the Baptist, far greater than Elijah, far greater than the prophets of old if we would be saved from our sin. Only Jesus, who is both God, that is, born, conceived by the Holy Ghost, and man, born of a virgin, is able to save everyone who will put their trust in him. His life is the life of the sinless Son of God. And therefore, it is sufficient to save everyone who believes. I think one of the reasons the disciples struggled to know who Jesus was is their inability to reconcile his power and his humility. They didn't yet understand how to hold his power and his meekness in tension. Jesus isn't one or the other. He's both. He has all authority in heaven and on earth, and yet he humbles himself even to the point of death. So I want to close with a quote from Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest theologians the United States has ever produced. Uh, he's hard to read, but valuable to read. This is written about 275 years ago. Christ not only bestowed grace for those sinners who will receive it by faith, but he suffered in this world of sin and misery in order to show mercy to sinners. He suffered the most extreme evil unto death, receiving in himself the curse and punishment of God for sinners, although he was blameless and without sin. Christ had sufferings in his soul that were the most immediate fruits of the wrath of God against the sins of those whom he loves and stands in for as the merciful Savior. In the person of Christ, we see infinite glory and lowest humility come together paradoxically and meet in his person. Infinite glory and the virtue of humility meet in no other person but Christ. Infinite glory and lowest humility meet in no created person, for no created person has infinite glory, and they meet in no other divine person but Christ.
in Jesus Christ, who is both God and man, those two diverse excellencies are sweetly united. Christ is a person infinitely exalted in glory and dignity, and yet he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. What a Savior. I have an assignment for you this week. In John chapter 6, people say to Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. How is that an assignment? Well, here's, I'll flesh it out just a little bit. And everything you do this week, in your family, in your work, in your relationships, your parenting, the way that you care for others, do so in a way that demonstrates that you believe in the one he has sent, that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness to us, your great mercy. We thank you that Jesus Christ, who is God, would come to earth and humble himself to the point of death on a cross to pay the penalty for our sins, to pay the ransom price for our sin. Heavenly Father, we're thankful to you. I'm sure we're not as thankful as we should be. But Lord, work it into our hearts that we would be thankful to you for what you have done for us. For it is very, very great. Lord Jesus, you're greater than John the Baptist, as great as he was. You're greater than Elijah, as great as he was. Greater than all of the prophets of old combined, as great as they were. And so we have come to worship you. And Lord, if there's some in the room today who do not know you, would you speak to them and draw them to yourself so that they may know you and rejoice in you all the days of their lives. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.